Thank you for being patient with us. Um, pardon our mess here up front. We're making some really good progress on our altar update project. Uh, big thanks to a couple people in particular. Big thanks to Jordan Thompson, uh, to Tyler Hellman, uh, Chauncey, Keela. These guys have, have helped put in uh, some long hours and oftentimes late hours uh, to keep this project moving along and helping us try to hit our deadline, which is not that far away, which is keeping me up at night a little bit. But uh, I do think we're going to get there. I think we're going to actually get this thing done. Um, maybe even, well, I'm not going to say that. It's going to be done at some point. Our Old Testament text today as we follow the lectionary. It's this text out of Genesis 12. And this is the moment, this is that story some of you will be familiar with of God calling Abraham. And God is calling Abraham to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to leave everything that he's known and been familiar with to the land that God says, I will show you I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, God says, all the families of the world shall be blessed. A few quick things that I want to draw our attention to. One, it's, it's hard for us at times for us to appreciate how radical some of these stories are. Aside from Abraham being 75 years old at this moment, God is making this promise to him as an old man. Paul later on, will mention this later, that when he's telling this story, he says that when God called Abraham at 75 years old, he was as good as dead. My dad just celebrated his 76th birthday this week. And I called him and reminded him of the words of Paul to the Romans. <laughs> you are entering the land of as good as dead. But aside from this, and aside from his wife, Sarah, being barren, she's unable to have children. Now she and her husband are being told that their children, which they have none, God will make them a great nation. We have to remember that what God is asking Abraham to do is a brand new thing in the world. Abraham and Sarah, they lived roughly 4,000 years ago. That means that we live as far away from the biblical life of Jesus as Jesus lived from the life of Abraham and Sarah. And the way that people viewed the world 4,000 years ago was just a little bit different than the way that you and I think about the world. In their mind, oftentimes they held what's known as a cyclical view of history that time, history, wasn't necessarily progressing as much as it was just repeating itself. So that what has already happened is likely happening now and bound to happen again and again and again. And the people of the world, the nations, as the text calls them, they existed mostly, primarily in competition with one another. So that for one nation to be great means that one nation has to oppress Another nation, we have no idea what that's like in our modern world today. So people, they didn't just go off and start nations. They certainly didn't leave their homes and leave their families and everything that they've known to go and do some brand new kind of thing. This moment in Abraham's life, 
is God doing a new thing in the world. Go, he says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. And so in this moment, Abraham is breaking this cyclical view of history to go and to do and to be a brand new thing in the world. And that brand new thing, God says, is to be a people of blessing. In Paul's letter to the Romans in our epistle for the week, he says that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord. This is one of the things that I find fascinating about the story of Abraham, that in this moment, there are no arguments for the existence of God. There's no apologetic for the existence of God. Abraham didn't have a creed. Abraham didn't, didn't have a set of rules, a set of beliefs. It just says that he believed God. God appeared to him. He told him a thing and, God, and Abraham believes the thing that God says to him. God spoke to him. Abraham believed and then he obeyed. We've been told over and over again that this is what it is to have faith. Ever since Martin Luther, the founding father of Protestantism, Father Abraham has served as exhibit A for us of what we think it means for us to have faith. Abraham didn't lift a finger to be saved. Abraham did nothing to earn it or deserve God calling him. Abraham simply believed God. He was justified by faith. These are the things that we've heard over and over again. And this is at least what we think Paul is suggesting to us when we're told Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, that this is what it is to have faith. But when we reduce Abraham, when we reduce this story down to an example of someone who has faith in God and is rewarded accordingly, we lose the whole plot of what God is doing in Abraham and through Abraham. Paul isn't arguing that we should have faith in the same way Abraham had faith so that we too can become righteous. That's not what he's suggesting. Paul's argument throughout the book of Romans is that what we discover in Jesus Christ is God making good on a promise that God first made to Abraham 2,000 years prior to this moment. Christ, Paul says, is the fulfillment of that new thing being done in the world that started 2,000 years before Mary gives birth to this son. If you are a parent, you know the promises that you've made to your children that you hope they forget, and they don't. <laughs> Inevitably, that thing that you told your kid, hey, maybe next week we'll do that thing, a week goes by, and you think, whew, snuck one by them and then inevitably they're standing over you in your sleep going, is today the day? We hope our kids forget our promises, but God comes back to his people thousands of years later to fulfill the promise that he made. And what is that promise? What is that new thing that God is doing in the world? That new thing is that through your life and the life of your children, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. They will be blessed. And Abraham believed God. 
It doesn't say he believed in God. He just believes God. He believes and accepts a single, very specific thing that God said to him, that the world would be blessed. Jason McKelly, he's a, I believe a Methodist minister. He says that Abraham believed the promise, the promise that his children would be like the stars in the sky. And the stars God promises to Abraham are meant to be a light to the world. That promise to Abraham wasn't just about progeny. It wasn't just about having children. The promise is that through Abraham, God would create a new and distinct people in the world. That the way God would pick the world back up from its fall, the way that God would heal the world's sin, the way that God would bring forth new creation, it starts by God creating a new people. The promise is that through Abraham, God would create a people who would do what Adam failed to do. A people whose trust in God and trust in one another would provide an alternative to the ways of the world, the ways of competition, the ways of greed, the ways of, of cursing rather than blessing. Abraham didn't believe everything that he could possibly believe about God. We know this about his story. In fact, Abraham, he lacked faith that he and Sarah that in their old bodies could produce new life. But despite his doubts, in spite of those moments of uncertainty, of questioning if that thing that God said could really happen, despite his questions, those parts of God's word that he scratched his head at and crossed his fingers through, what Abraham always believed, what Abraham always had faith in, what it always meant for Abraham to be a person of faith was this single promise that God so loved the world that God did not give up on what he had made. That's the promise. That in some way, somehow, blessing is gonna come to the world that he made, that he did not abandon it to its whims. And just as God's first creation began with God calling into that formless void, let there be light, God's new creation begins by God calling a people who would be light to the world. That's the new thing God is doing in Abraham. And that is what the life of Jesus shows us. Here in Matthew's gospel, our gospel text for today, Jesus shows us what this new family looks like. He embodies those new people in the world and shows us how we can participate in that kind of life. We're told that Jesus eats and drinks with sinners, which we get is just hanging out with the wrong crowd. But it's also more than that. Sinners in their world, it constituted anyone who would not or could not keep and observe the intricacies of Jewish law, maintaining these complicated purity codes. And tax collectors by occupation tended to fit this bill to a T. They didn't just have an unfortunate job. They didn't just have to do that really 
unsettling thing of collecting money from their neighbors. They stood as representatives of the oppressing force of the Roman Empire, the pagan government of Rome. In this world, they were despised. They're often lumped together with sinners because they corroborated with these oppressive authorities. And they oftentimes made extra money for themselves by collecting a little bit too much. Someone only took this job, someone only became a tax collector if they were unable to find any other kind of work, any other kind of employment. Because day after day and year after year, what Matthew's life would have looked like as a tax collector would be to sit in his booth, which was often like a toll road booth, and just take money from his own people but also this places him in constant contact with the Gentiles, constantly sharing the same items, rubbing shoulders with them, coming into contact with those people that by Jewish law were unclean. Tax collectors weren't just bad guys doing a bad job. They were seen as ceremonially unclean because they had to touch and share with and be around those people that Jews believed to be unclean, those people that Jews believed to be sinners. It's this group that Jesus sits down and shares his meals with. Now we eat a little differently than they did. Last night I was at my in-law's house and it's, pretty standard practice, I think, in their home as it would be in your home, that when the food is ready, everyone gets a plate, everyone goes and gets their food, you sit down, and there's no sharing of plates. There's no mingling of food. <laughs> this is not how people ate in first century Palestine. To eat and to share a meal in that space would have been to maybe had a piece of bread and bowls of oils and herbs and sauces that everyone is reaching in and everyone is dipping into. So that to share a meal is an intimate affair. To share a meal is not just to say, hey, let's share company with each other, but it is in some way to join your life to these people who you are sharing this food with. For you to share a meal like that in the ancient world, again, isn't just being familiar with someone. It's about intimately knowing those people to join your life with them at that table. And that's what Jesus does. Not just associating with them, but joining them together, his life and theirs, to the frustration of everyone around him. And it's at that table that table of tax collectors and sinners that a leader of the synagogue comes and kneels before him and says, my daughter has just died. Now, every gospel account of this story tells it like a sandwich. It's, it starts with a girl has died. And so Jesus gets up to go to her. But before he can get there, this woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years touches Jesus. And then he goes on to raise this girl from the dead. So we have his intention and then his movement to this girl. And right in the middle is this woman who has interrupted him. We've read this and we've been told this as just a sequence of events that Jesus was doing this. He got asked to do this. He's on his way, but he gets interrupted. Then he gets back to the thing that he was doing. But at every turn in Matthew's gospel, what he is trying to get us to see says nothing about what Jesus is doing makes any sense. 
Matthew is saying, what you think is happening shouldn't be happening. There are only a handful of things in the Jewish world that can make you ceremonially unclean in the eyes of Jewish law. Touching dead bodies is one of them and touching someone who's bleeding. Jesus is in the wrong place, eating and drinking with the wrong people at the wrong time. The synagogue's leader, her daughter has already died. He wasn't even present with her in the dying moment. It's already happened. And it's at this point on paper, what Jesus ought to do is go and wash, bathe himself, and stay in his home for a full day before he can be considered clean again, able to be a part of society again as one who is not unclean. But he gets up from the table of tax collectors and sinners and he sets out to lay his hands on a dead girl. He gets interrupted by a bleeding woman. He heals her and still goes to raise this girl from the dead. Matthew is saying to us, Jesus' life is the life of blessing that was promised to Abraham. It's a life that's so full of blessing that even the things we consider cursed don't curse him. That when Jesus stands alongside sinners and tax collectors, when Jesus rubs shoulders with someone who's bleeding, when Jesus lays his hands on the dead, he doesn't become unclean, they become sanctified. The bleeding woman does not change him. He changes her. The table of sinners and tax collectors doesn't change him. He somehow makes that to be a meal of everlasting life. This table that we come to week after week after week, this meal is possible because Jesus first sits down with sinners and tax collectors and says from here into eternity, those are the kinds of people that I share my meals with. We shouldn't see the sinners and tax collectors as the people out there who need to get in here. We are the sinners and the tax collectors who have been invited to this table by the grace of Jesus. And it's our lives that change here. It doesn't change anything about who Jesus is. Jesus takes the hand of a dead girl, touches the most unclean thing that they can imagine. And it doesn't make him unclean. It raises her back to life. In all of these instances, Jesus is doing what he shouldn't be able to do given their rules and their purity codes. But Jesus knows what Abraham knew and what they had forgotten. What we have to remember, that to live a life of blessing is to live in such a way that new life is possible. God speaks a blessing on Abraham and on Sarah and in their barren old age, as good as dead, life can spring forth that blesses the world. Tax collectors and sinners, no one wants to share a meal with them. No one wants to welcome them to their table and Jesus joins them. He dips his bread in their cup. The bleeding woman had no chance of burying children of her own but she touched the one that she wasn't supposed to touch. She's rubbing shoulders with all the people she shouldn't be around. And he wasn't made unclean. She was healed.
and new life is possible. Jesus says to the girl's family, she's not dead, but asleep. Living a life of blessing, the life that we are promised into, it allows you to see the world differently, to see the world as a promise, as a place that God loves and a place that God hasn't given up on, a place where there is always the possibility of new life to take shape. And to find ourselves in that story is to see ourselves as one of those stars that was promised to Abraham. And those stars, again, are meant to be a light to the world. We are called to be people who speak a word of blessing and not cursing. We're called to be people who can see new possibilities and new opportunities and the ways in which new life can actually take shape if we live from that place of blessing and not cursing. Because if we do that, if we embody blessing, if we can be those kinds of people in the world, new life and new creation just might be possible. Amen.